9, and it's the end of the first section, major section of Isaiah, and um, we'll finish up with the story of Hezekiah, and then we transition into the, um, the servant songs, uh, the uh, the, 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 prof, the prophecies regarding the servant of the Lord. Who's the servant of the Lord in Isaiah's prophecy? Christ, that's right. And we talk about, Isaiah rather, uh, talks about Christ's um, coming, his passion or what we call his suffering, his victory, and then his, his earthly reign. And of course, none of it is in particular order, uh, but all of the details of the life of Christ essentially will begin to come out very strongly. And uh, of course, you know, Isaiah 53 is by far the most dramatic and um, uh, intense of all of the prophecies of Isaiah. So um, it's a great, great section. And it's all the gospel, of course. So anyway, before we get there, we'll finish up with Isaiah, uh, not Isaiah, with Hezekiah, the folly of Hezekiah. It's a bummer that uh, his story ends like this in the book of Isaiah, but uh, I'm glad it ends differently uh, in Second Kings. So, so why don't we, we stand up and uh, I'll read God's word to you. It's a shorter chapter than 38. At that time, Moradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them, and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what do these men say, and from where do they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Well, Father, um, as Paul says that all of these stories in the Old Testament, they're for our learning. <clears throat> and uh, so again, we appeal to uh, your spirit to teach us, to draw out of the text things we might learn both about our own humanity uh, Lord, about your justice, your grace. And uh, so, yeah, so encourage us tonight with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Well, uh, the, the, uh, the, I don't even know what it's all called. It kicked me off a minute ago. So we might go slideless if it is misbehaving. So, so let's get into it here. So at that time, following his illness, Moradak, Moradak, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. In fact, all the way from Babylon, uh, they had gotten word that some 
uh, miracle had been performed regarding the light. And uh, so very interesting. But a little bit of context here. Mordak Baladan, uh, to the rest of the world, his name was Marduk Apal Idina, the invader. He was named after his god, Marduk. Uh, we'll look at him perhaps later. He was a rogue king who had tried to free himself from the yoke of Assyria on at least two occasions and had tried many times to form alliances with various nation states to aid in his effort. All attempts had failed, uh, but this man, the giving up was just not in his nature. And so he sent this envoy from Babylon to congratulate Hezekiah on being healed. And they brought letters and they brought a gift, uh, which I'm sure was extremely lavish. Now, it's reasonable to believe that this delegation, uh, they weren't just there to congratulate Hezekiah on being healed, okay? Uh, it's likely that the delegation, uh, or we might say, first of all, it's unlikely that a delegation came a thousand miles just to uh, say, we're, we're glad you recovered. Uh, it's more probable that what they were doing was they were uh, trying to form a military alliance with Judea, okay? Uh, the Babylonians were currently chafing under the hand of Assyria, tyranny, taxes, and uh, tribute. And uh, they, like no other kingdom, was uh, just chomping at the bit for liberty because, you know, Babylon for centuries had been this powerhouse and uh, they had lost it to the Assyrians, and they were just eager to reestablish that power in the region. And so a military alliance is probably what they're doing. And a thousand miles, of course, is a little bit just to say we're glad for you, right? And who knows how many other kingdoms uh, this envoy hit up on the way to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Just wise or foolish? Wise? Okay, all right. So it says that Hezekiah was pleased or delighted, we might say, uh, regarding their concern for his well-being, but he was flattered to the point of foolishness, okay, and his pride uh, essentially blinded him from uh, better judgment. These, these pagan Babylonians should not have been mistaken for friends at all. You know, military alliances are usually sought for one's own benefit, not for mutual security. And when one ally gets the upper hand over their mutual enemy, they often turn on those who partnered with them, especially if their ally has great wealth or resources. And so showing his wealth, his riches to these pagan foreigners was really an issue of national security, unwise for a king. He may have been, you know, motivated to uh, show them all of his wealth and his armory to demonstrate that he uh, had the means to support an army, okay, that was worthy, uh, as a worthy companion. But who knows what this Babylonian envoy was thinking when they saw just the masses of wealth that God had given to Hezekiah and his fathers uh, over the, the generations. Yeah, so, you know, at that time, armies were typically funded 
by the wealth that they plundered from other kingdoms. Right now I'm reading through 1 Maccabees with my kids. If you haven't read 1 Maccabees, I think I've told you before, you should read it because the story is actually the fulfillment of one of Daniel's prophecies. It's not scripture, but uh, it's prophesied about, and uh, the Maccabees do exactly what Daniel prophesied that they would do. But in the story, you know, as soon as Judas takes over the army, uh, they call him the Maccabee, the hammer, uh, they begin to have great success against the Greeks, against Antiochus Epiphany. And so Antiochus decides, well, I better go to Persia and uh, sack some other kingdoms and take their gold so that I can both acquire that wealth and then I'll have money to pay a larger army and then we can uh, defeat the Maccabees, which of course we know that that whole effort failed and we have what holiday because of it? Hanukkah, that's right, yep. So putting your wealth on display for another kingdom to view was not a brilliant idea, but being flattered stirred his pride, blinded his judgment. How many guys, um, so Shannon and I are trying to move out into the county. So I've been visiting the listings online and uh, I've been disturbed looking at some of these houses because in the photographs, you can see their gun safes, their safes, and uh, some of their prized possessions. And I think, I'm not sure if I would want to put my address out there to the world and show them which room all of my possessions were in. And uh, gun safes are not as safe as people think. They're more of a deterrent. So, but that's essentially what Hezekiah did to one of the most dangerous uh, kingdoms in the world uh, that was on the rise and the generation away uh, from subduing the Assyrians. And uh, he is showing them his wealth, his armory, everything else. Yep, they know where it is, where to get it. Now, the passage here is important, uh, not just for the, I think, the moral lesson in it, um, but the mention of Hezekiah's great wealth provides a, a time stamp in regard to uh, the, the historical chronology of the events that we've looked at. Because we began with the, the invasion of the Assyrians, right? And then we went to Hezekiah's illness, and now we're at this point. Uh, the question arises, what order did it all occur in? And you always have to ask that, it seems, in the prophets, because their primary concern was events, not chronology, okay? So in 2 Kings 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verses 14 through 16, Hezekiah took all the wealth of the kingdom and gave it to the Assyrians to stave off Sennacherib's wealth, or his wrath, rather. But here in the text, Hezekiah had great wealth to show off. So therefore, we must place the arrival of the Babylonian envoy prior to the invasion of the Assyrians. You understand? Okay. So considering all of the pertinent details, uh, it's most likely that Moradak sent his delegation to Hezekiah about a year before the Assyrian invasion of Judea when Hezekiah still had wealth to show off. So the order of events, as we've considered in the book of Isaiah, is the illness of Hezekiah, probably 703 BC, the Babylonian envoy, uh, 703 to 702, and then the Assyrian invasion in 701 BC. Okay. As I said before, the prophets oftentimes were, they thought that the timing of an event was completely irrelevant. They were just concerned about the events themselves. 
Um, Jeremiah is probably by far the worst. Okay, his book is organized by themes, not by historical chronology. So I don't know if it's a personality thing. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Could be. All right, good enough for me. So then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country from Babylon. So considering the mode of transportation of the time, a thousand miles seems like a pretty long way. Of course, what they would do is they would, if you were going to Babylon from Jerusalem, you'd travel north and then you'd come to what's called the Fertile Crescent and then you'd travel east, uh, you'd go north and then east-south to Babylon. They wouldn't go straight across like they do today, but if you go straight across, it's 600 miles. So it's a really long ways when you would go the other way. And of course, back then they traveled the water routes because there's not much water straight across. So it was a very long way to bring a present. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, I could just imagine if things are starting to dawn upon Hezekiah. They've seen all that's in my house. <laughs> there, there's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. I wonder if, you know, if he's maybe starting to feel a little sheepish. Maybe he's wondering, you know, maybe Isaiah's inquiring because there's a national security issue here. Did he realize that his better judgment was blinded by flattery? He must have thought how special he must have been that people would travel, strangers would travel a thousand miles to bring a present. Hindsight can hurt. Then Isaiah um, said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts, the word of the Lord. So it turns out that this whole thing was a test of Hezekiah's heart, a test of his character. God put Hezekiah in this position with the envoy to expose his pride. Now, I'm not a magician. I, I actually read that in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31. It says that God tested Hezekiah in order that he might know all that was in his heart. In the context of that whole thing, uh, it says that Hezekiah had become proud in his heart. God had blessed him uh, a lot like he had blessed Solomon with his wealth, his accomplishments. And uh, so this whole thing was set up in order to bring all of this to the surface. Hezekiah was apparently thinking too highly of himself. Instead of attributing his success and his achievements to God, he was beginning to think like Nebuchadnezzar about his kingdom and kind of basking in his own magnificence. And so God wanted him to learn a few things. I think from the story mingled with Second Chronicles, it's the folly of pride. Pride comes before humiliation. He wanted Hezekiah to know the consequences of pride, especially for those in positions of great authority. So here it is. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So all that's been acquired from generations past until this time would be taken away. Babylon didn't just come and wage war against Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, they came and they just annihilated it. And uh, they took everything. They just stripped the entire kingdom of its wealth. Everything, the only thing really that was left in the land when they were done were a handful of peasants. He says, and they shall take away 
some of your sons, I think the word some is important, who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So consider the the two verses, verse 6 and 7. Because of Hezekiah's carelessness, three generations would be affected. He says his fathers, who had acquired much of the material blessing from God, they would suffer the consequence, as it were. Hezekiah's own generation, okay, they'll suffer the loss of the current treasury. And then subsequent generations would bear, really, the brunt of it. The, the mention of, of Hezekiah's progeny being made eunuchs for the, the Babylonian palace, uh, it came to pass in Daniel 1. I think if anything is, is heartbreaking, it's the idea of uh, your, your children becoming eunuchs, your boys, because they cannot have children, they can't be married. And uh, passing on, uh, I know that it's not a big deal in Western culture anymore, but you know, having children and just uh, perpetuating your line was everything to the, the people of the East. It's sad. We see it come to pass in Daniel 1, after many of the young men from the royal household, that's from the Davidic line, were taken to Babylon and made eunuchs for Nebuchadnezzar's court. Daniel... And of course, we say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are pagan names. It was actually Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, They were among them. So Daniel and his friends were made eunuchs. And so the interesting thing about Hezekiah's sin is that it's far-reaching, far-reaching. Our sin is not in isolation. But in the text, there is a glimmer of hope in the passage Uh, Even in the midst of all the tragedy, we see that throughout all of Isaiah's prophecies, even up to this point, he has doom and gloom, judgment, and then after that there's redemption and reconciliation and the recovery of God's people. I think there's a hint at it here in the passage. Uh, At the current time, Hezekiah had no male heir to take his place. He had no no, no boys at all, but he would, according to the oracle, he would have sons, says he would bear them. Now, sadly, among his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, some would be made eunuchs, but the text says some of them. So not necessarily all of them were taken. And they couldn't all be taken because God made his promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. So let's look at Hezekiah's response. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good where he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. So two responses to the oracle. The first, he says, the word of the Lord is good. That's the judgment of God is appropriate. It's, it's reasonable. Okay, so he's already humbled, I think, at this point. And you see, this isn't just about Hezekiah. Uh, we know from, uh, especially in the context of the Old Testament, that sins could be generational. And so it's actually the collective sins of Judea up to this time, and those leading up to the Babylonian invasion, would really justify God's judgment of his people. That God had actually tolerated things up to this point was a demonstration of his long-suffering. Okay? Because prior to Hezekiah, uh, there was some great evil in Judea. And then Hezekiah also said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Now, I think it's easy to interpret Hezekiah's words as cold or indifferent, uh, sort of like, well, you know, it it ain't me. 
but I think it overlooks some important details um, from, from the, the whole context. Um, we've already said that God's judgment upon Judea was not only because of Hezekiah's carelessness and pride, it was, because, it was because of Judea's collective sins since the days of Solomon. Uh, there was generational idolatry, immorality, and rebellion as a nation. Uh, we could say they had been treasuring up for themselves their just desert that was coming upon them. Okay? I think that Hezekiah was just expressing his relief that this calamity uh, brought by generations of rebellion would not come in his lifetime. After all, morally speaking, Hezekiah was the greatest king of Judah, according to the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I think that God himself was sparing Hezekiah of <clears throat> what was coming. He'd actually save it uh, for one of the most wicked kings, his great-grandson. So it's crazy. The, uh, the subsequent generations would actually provoke the Lord with terrible, terrible stuff, even child sacrifice. Manasseh would burn his son in the fire to, to Molech, no less. Manasseh, wow. He, the text says that he did more to provoke God than the nations uh, that he destroyed so that he could let the Israelites come in. Just so perverse, so wicked. In fact, <clears throat> when God talks about the judgment because of Manasseh's sin, he says, I'm going to take Jerusalem like somebody takes a plate and I'm going to wipe it clean. He says, I'm just completely done uh, with what's been happening in Israel. So, of course, we know there was 31 years of respite during Josiah's reign, uh, but then all of the evil of Manasseh was restored by his son and grandson until Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land and then took the Jews captive. Very sad history. So, as I mentioned in our prayer, Paul says that all of these stories are for our learning, for our example. And uh, so, what do we gain practically uh, from this particular chapter. I think there's a few things here. Um, I think it's important to remember, to keep in mind that the consequences of our sins are not always isolated to us. True? Yeah. Um, Adam, of course, is the ultimate example of this. For by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. Uh, we know death in our world. We know illness. Uh, we know wickedness all introduced into the world uh, through a choice of Adam, um, far-reaching. Now, of course, our sin uh, is not as far-reaching as Adam's because he was, as theologians call, he was the federal head of all of humanity at that time. But, you know, we can make uh, financial decisions, for example, that can benefit or hurt those that are closest to us. And so the scriptures would teach us that our financial endeavors should not be executed in covetousness or selfish gain. Uh, the honor of God should be the motivating factor behind our spending. Our actions can help or hurt others. Some actions uh, sadly can bring reproach upon Christ, his church, our families. Um, oftentimes they think, well, my actions in public can certainly impact all three of those areas. Amen. You remember when uh, David had um, committed adultery and then murdered uh, Uriah, uh, the Lord said to him, you have given the Gentiles an occasion to blaspheme. What a, a terrible thing to hear. So we should be always consider, considering others uh, before we act. Also, uh, we should be ever conscious of our pride 
and the things that trigger or appeal to it. We all have pride, amen? And I think it's important to know ourselves and to know the, the things that trigger it, the things that appeal to it, that flatter it, okay? So Hezekiah took the bait and it led him to foolish things. Pride clouds our better judgment. You know, Eve, uh, though she did not yet have indwelling sin in the form of pride, there was something appealing in Satan's words about her becoming like God if she ate the fruit. The idea of it, the text says, made the fruit look appetizing, good to make one wise. Instead of consulting Adam or her daddy, she just ate the fruit. Saul, for example, he was flattered by his own success and it led to his rebellion. There's that great statement from Samuel. Samuel, and, and the text says Samuel loved Saul. And it just, he was brokenhearted by the behavior of Saul. And he came to him and he said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? In other words, when you were little in your own eyes, you were the man until you got puffed up. You were great when you thought you were small. So success appealed too much to his pride. Let's not even talk about Samson and Delilah. It's another interesting one. In 2 Chronicles 12, the friends of Rehoboam enticed him to exert more authority over the people than his father Solomon did. And as a result, he was intoxicated with power and then ultimately led to the division of the kingdom. You know, pride, uh, it waits in our hearts to be enticed. It waits to be flattered. And it's just something that we have to be on guard for. And we're all enticed, I think, a little different than other people. Some people, uh, success is probably their greatest danger. For other people, it may just be compliments. For other people, it might just be opportunity. I don't know what it is, but being flattered clouds our better judgments. But the beautiful thing is God always leaves us a way to escape. He does. You remember when Potiphar's wife came on to Joseph? He could have stuck around and enjoyed the flattery, but instead he fled the scene she, of course, accused him of trying to seduce her, and he was in prison for it, but he did the right thing. In fact, when she came on to him the first time, he said, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? About 1,500 years later, the Apostle Paul said, flee sexual morality, flee youthful lusts. Joseph understood that principle literally. Yeah, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 2 Timothy 2:22. Another interesting story is Shemaiah, the, he was the secret informant, and he tried to entice Nehemiah to save his own life by hiding in the holy place of the temple. To, to do so would have been the height of presumption, to think that he who was not a priest was so important that he could just enter the sanctuary for refuge. Nehemiah said this, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And it turns out that it was a setup. His enemies wanted him to go into the temple so that they could use him, of prof uh, uh, abuse him and accuse him of profaning the temple itself. There's always a way out. Now, as far as flattery goes, uh, the en enticing you, I think it comes in many different shapes and sizes. You know, someone or something in your circumstances, or something from your wicked heart, because you all know you have one, uh, makes you feel important, 
We love to feel valued or makes you feel attractive. We love to be noticed. Convinces you that you're deserving. We love to be appreciated. Entices you into entitlement. We love to think that we're worthy or it tells you that you were mistreated. There's no greater justification for the reciprocation of evil like suffering injury, right? Whether intentional or otherwise. And so because of these things, our pride awakens, it clouds our judgments and you respond. You reciprocate, you, we act, we make a decision that is either sinful or it's redeeming. You guys, as soon as we feel our pride stirring with ideas, that is the time to snuff it out and say, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The moment that we can, or we understand at least, that we can secure our own selfish ends by our authority or our position, opportunity. We need to surround ourselves with counselors and people who can hold us accountable. You know the story of Rehoboam. He first went to his father's counselors and they said, if you are kind to these people, they'll be your servants forever. But then he went to his pals there's always great danger in uh, consulting your own generation. He was about my age. And they said, no, you need to just lay on the tyranny. And he said, yeah. And then he tore down the kingdom. As soon as we detect that we are more than little in our own eyes, we need to humble ourselves before God does. And finally, if pride leads into sin and the consequences are divvied out, we should receive them as appropriate, as Hezekiah did. The word of the Lord regarding this consequence is good. The truth is God loves us enough not to let us get away with it. As Hebrews says, he disciplines those that he loves. That's all I got for you. Let's stand up and pray. I am excited to get into the next section of Isaiah. Um, As telling Pete, it is the most theological section of Isaiah. I pray not to bore you with it, even though it's what keeps me up at night. And uh, so I'll try to make theology as riveting as possible as we talk about the nature, the sovereignty, the holiness of God. And uh, yeah, so let's pray. Father, <clears throat> it's, the story of Hezekiah is just, it's good and sad to see such a great man make such a foolish error and put the whole kingdom in jeopardy because of his pride And Lord, we all have little kingdoms and you've called us to be providers and protectors and pride just has no place in in all that. And we need to be purged of it. We need to be constantly aware of it. So I pray that you'd, Lord, help each of us to be ever conscious of uh, what triggers our pride. How is it that we're flattered and how how might we become big in our own eyes? Lord, help us to be sober-minded about ourselves and uh, help us to consider others before we act, especially for the sake of our spouses, our children, the church, Lord, and for the glory of God. So thank you. Grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.